God, uh, I, I can't believe there's not one man or woman here this morning that uh, couldn't at times use a dose of confidence, especially in our spiritual lives, which tends to be a bit more nebulous and at times not as clear as some of the more tangible areas of our lives. And so, God, I pray that as we talk now about this idea of confidence on a spiritual level and where we get our confidence from, that, God, you'd help us understand rightly what you've revealed to us. And, Lord, as I always pray, may we apply it very courageously and diligently in our lives. God, may, may what we talk about this morning matter this week. May we be able to apply it this week and live for you as we have sung about. And so, God, meet us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get you thinking about this idea of confidence, I want you to think of all the different areas in your life right now that you tend to take stock in that give you confidence in your life. Every one of you have, and we all have areas in our lives that we rely on every day, whether we know it or not, in which we take confidence in certain things, and that's what gets us by. That's what gives us assurance and security. So, for instance, natural talents are a great source of confidence for many of us. We know that from the time we were little guys and gals that we were very analytical or maybe very smart or very good at certain uh, aptitudes or physical vocations. We, we just know that we were born very naturally good in certain areas and we rely on natural talents. Some of us I would say we rely on education or our training. We went to a good college or a good university or we've gotten some great vocational training for our trade. And so day in and day out, we take confidence in that. Others of us would say that we rely on our personal charisma. Maybe we're in sales or we do something like teaching and we know that we're really good with people, that the strength of our personality can get us by and many times it does. Others of us would say, kind of switching gears, I rely on family and friends and those around me to give me confidence. They believe in me, they love me, and man, they're just a source of strength for me. While still others of us would say, well, come on, Jamie, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. We're Americans, we rely on material things to give us confidence. We've amassed some wealth, even in the recession, and we've done pretty good for ourselves, and we rely on those material things throughout our lives. I mean, think about it, folks. So many things that give us confidence in our lives that allow us to have an air of security even when things get tough. We've done pretty well for ourselves. Most of us are fairly confident people, at least when others look at our lives from the outside. But then we get to our spiritual lives, and tell me if this isn't true, and we realize that it's a different ball game. We realize that all the different things that we rely on day in and day out for our confidence don't quite fit so neatly into our walk with God. I mean, education is not going to give one confidence in approaching God. Do we all understand that? He's not all that impressed with where you went to school. Personal charisma isn't going to get prayer answered. We all understand that, right? You're not going to kind of talk God into it if he doesn't want to do something. He's not impressed with your personal charisma. And natural talents, as we say quite often around here, aren't going to get you into heaven. I mean, they're not going to give you any assurance of heaven any more than other areas of your life because natural talents are what you begin life with. They're not what you end life with. And so the question becomes, if not these things, if not all the things that you and I rely on day in and day out for confidence, then what? What are the things that will truly and surely tell us that we are God's and that He is still active in our lives? Even during those times when we are most shaken, when we're tempted to lose confidence that God is in our lives and that He's front and center, how can we get that confidence back to know that we're on the right road with Him? 
And as we dive into 1 John chapter 5, as we turn the page to this chapter, he's going to talk about this. And he's going to give us some things that will help us gain confidence in our walk with Almighty God. And before we even get to what those things are, let me give you his main point of the first 13 chapters of first, or first 13 verses of 1 John chapter 5. Because he wants to assure us of something here, and that's this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that you can have confidence and assurance that you are truly God's. Some of you didn't know that walking in here this morning. We just might as well lay it right out. You can have confidence and assurance that you are really God's. You don't need to wonder about your security and assurance as a believer. That both right now as well as eternally, John is going to make it clear to you and I that we can absolutely know that God is in our lives that we have a place in eternity and that that place is with him and that no matter what you go through this side of heaven he is always with you even when you struggle the most it's called the assurance of the believer and john is about ready to lay it out in inarguable terms so look at what he says in verse 13 of first john 5 this is fascinating this is the end of the passage he's wrapping up what his main point is he says this he says i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god now here it is so that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so why has John written this letter? Why did he write his entire gospel? Simply so that you and I might have rock-solid confidence so that we might know that our faith is not in vain, that we need have eternal life, and that God is front and center in our lives. And that word know there is the operative term, K-N-O-W. It's fascinating. John uses that word know 35 times in this short little letter. It's only five chapters long. So that means on an average of seven times per chapter, he's talking about this idea of us knowing something. He's very concerned that we know something about God, that we are sure of something. And in the majority of the context, just like this one, that word no is used. It has to do with our confidence that indeed we are God's and that he is front and center in our lives. Even when false teachers infiltrate the church and confuse people with untrue things like they were doing in John's day, or even when persecution is strong around you and others don't seem to get your faith like what was happening to John's church, or even when sin becomes like a really arduous battle and one that you lose on many days, like what was happening to John's friends. He's simply saying that, that those things don't have to rob you of your confidence and assurance before God. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And once you get this, the only question becomes, well, how, right? <laughs> like, how does that work? How do I get confidence that I'm really God's? What are the things in my life that show me that I'm indeed His? And John goes on to answer this. With utter clarity and machine-like precision, he answers this question. Here's the first thing he makes clear. Look up here on the screen. And that is that your primary source of confidence and assurance that you are truly God's is your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ. And notice there that I use the word primary. This is going to be critical for us understanding what John is saying here, that your primary mode of assurance is your faith in Christ. 
I'm going to give you some secondary sources of assurance here in a few minutes that John gives us as well, but, but that's not to be confused with the number one primary thing that he says our assurance is to come from, that indeed God is active in our lives, and that's our faith in Christ. So look at how he puts this. Look at verses 1 and then 11, 13 of 1 John. These are the bookends of this passage. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Then skip down to verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us, or God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Two things going on here that you don't want to miss. Two things that will help you understand what this passage, these verses, are saying here. First, focus on that little word, believe. Give me another click here, guys. That's the operative word here, believe. Twice repeated in verse 1 and then verse 13. It's the Greek word pistuo, and it literally means to have faith, to put trust in something or someone, to believe. As we're going to see in a minute, this is different from a good work. A belief or a faith is an inward disposition of one's heart in which you receive trust and rest on something. And though it might be shown in what you do in your works, it's not to be confused with works. That faith in the Bible is something that begins on the inside, as Jesus said. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but what proceeds from his heart. And so faith is something that proceeds from within us. It's a confidence that we have within us in something or someone that we might demonstrate then later in what we do. This is really important you grasp onto this for where we're going. So let me give you a very simple example. If I say to you that I have faith, that this stool can hold me, you might say, well, show us your faith. And I would show it to you by sitting on it and say, see, this stool can hold me. Wouldn't have been a bummer if it broke. Anyways, that this stool can hold me and that I have faith that this stool can hold me. Now, the fact that I sat in it demonstrated my faith, but I had faith way before I sat in it, didn't I? I looked at that chair and I said, I believe that chair can hold me up. And it was real and it was true. And before I did anything, before I even acted on it, I had faith. That's what faith is. It's an inward disposition of your heart and your mind in which you are resting, trusting, and relying on something. Now, hang on to that and notice the second thing that John makes clear in these pas this passage here, and that is that faith for our confidence spiritually has only one object, and that object is the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what makes us Christians, the fact that we have faith in Christ. Five times in four verses, he makes this crystal clear. He says, Jesus Christ, his Son, the Son, the Son of God, and then again, the Son of God. I think he's trying to make a point here. And the point is that the primary source of any and all confidence and assurance that you and I have as followers of God is going to come through our faith and our trust, our following of Jesus Christ. And what most Bible experts point out that is so incredibly amazing about this faith in Christ is that it is both the condition of our salvation with God, without which we don't have salvation, as well as the ongoing evidence of our relationship with God. So as R.C. Sproul 
puts it. Many of you have read him. He says that faith is the grounds of your justification before God. It's what's brought you into the kingdom, the fact that you've trusted Christ and believed in him, and now you are saved, to use the old biblical term. But then it's also the ongoing proof or confirmation, as you see it work out in your life, that you are still his. And it's because of this, folks, that faith then, now don't miss this, becomes the only condition of salvation, and as I say, the primary evidence of it. That's how powerful your faith placed in Jesus Christ is in giving you confidence before God. I want to give you an illustration here that that just might help that's rather simple, but I, I think you'll get it. Some of you noticed here that I brought a couple of props up here. Uh, fuel containers here, approved uh, federally for certain types of fuel. And let me just test your knowledge of our applicable fuel laws here. The first service actually failed in this test, so we'll see how well you guys do. Very, very fascinating. I revealed my Midwest roots with this, but, but if I showed you this can, this red can, um, what kind of fuel goes in this can? Gas. Exactly right. In fact, it says right on it, gasoline, and then a bunch of federal stuff that says if you do it, you're going to go to jail if you put anything else in it. And then this blue can. Anybody know what goes in the blue can? Again, federal regulation. What goes in here? A lot of you said water, didn't you? Wow, that like, that just shows you're from Arizona. You're so water insecure. And, uh, and, and, and I love you to death, but that's not the right answer. It's like, eh. And uh, no, the, the, the right answer is, it says right on it, kerosene. It's true. Somebody pushed back on me in the first service. It's not kerosene, it's water, aqua blue. And I said, no, it's really not. I, I said, read, it's kerosene. Federal regulation, blue means kerosene. I guess a redneck from the Midwest would only know that, but I do know that. And, and so this is kerosene. Now, bear with me here. If I was to bring your car up here on the stage, your car that you're driving here today, forget about whether you have a diesel car, let's not confuse the illustration, but if you have a, a regular car and uh, I asked you, which can do you need to use to put the right fuel in your car, which can would you choose? The red one, exactly. Because we all know that gas is the only fuel that the majority of our cars will run on. Let me ask you a question. What would happen if instead you use the blue can and put kerosene in your car? Does anybody know? It probably wouldn't run. I mean, it might run just for a very little time, but here's what kerosene does. Though it is a flammable liquid, kerosene is much thicker, and when it combusts, it turns into a pasty gel, and so it would combust inside your engine, and it would very quickly clog up your fuel jets, and your engine wouldn't run, and you need a complete engine redo because you put kerosene in there other than gasoline. So we all know from our experience, you'll see where we're going here in a minute here, that the red can of gas is the only type of fuel that can ignite the engine of your car. Now hang on to that. And let me ask you an even more simpler question, but you'll see what we're doing here in a minute here. Taking this analogy even further, what part of the car does the gas go into? The gas tank, right? Like, duh. But think about it. There's like at least five other spots that you could put gas into, right? You could put it in your power steering fluid. Don't do that. You could put it in the oil chamber. Don't do that. Automatic transmission fluid, the radiator. I mean, there are plenty of other spots you could put the gas in, but also have learned that if you want your car to run, you got to put it in the gas tank. So don't miss this. One type of fuel that your car can run on and only one spot to put it into. The red can 
into the gas tank, a simple lesson that every one of us have learned here today. Now here's where we're going with this. When I turn these cans around, you'll notice that this red can, I'm going to ask you to, to just go with me on this, symbolizes our faith. And this blue can, I'll explain this in a minute here, symbolizes good works or our works. And here's the point that John is making. He is saying that there is only one type of fuel that can ignite your spiritual life for salvation. And that is faith. Only faith. And he's saying that there's only one place for you to place your faith in, and that is Jesus Christ. So just like we know with our cars, there's only one fuel, one place. We all admit that. John is saying, same with your faith. That you have faith, and that the only place for you to place that is in Christ for your eternal salvation. Any other place will not get your car going. The old Protestant reformers would say it like this. Faith alone in Christ alone is salvation. With the key words there being alone. And yet here's where it gets tricky. Is that you and I live in a world, and even some of us have come out of churches that have kind of said, yeah, it is about faith, but you know what? Good works also play into the equation for our salvation. That you also need to add a little bit of kerosene in order to ignite your car. you got to make sure you got enough good works going on in there. And they teach that if you have good works plus your faith, then, then certainly you're going to have salvation. The only problem is, is that God says you can't do enough good works to earn salvation. You can't do enough good works to appease and please a holy God. So bringing good works into the equation of salvation is kind of like adding kerosene into your gas tank. It's just going to muck everything up. But then others of us, and this is how tricky it can get, other people say, well, yeah, you know, it is only about faith, Jamie, but you know what? It's not just about faith in Jesus, but you've got to place your faith in other things as well. I mean, let's not be so intolerant. I mean, it's faith in other places as well. You know, faith in, in, in yourself and faith in the economy and faith in your family and faith in your natural talents. And again, as I started the message, all of those things are fine on your daily physical level, but drag that into your spiritual life with God. And place your faith in anything but the gas tank of Christ. And God says you're not going to get very far. It's, I, I, I'm always amazed when people say that Christians are kind of narrow-minded and intolerant. You know, that, that in order to be a Christian, you have to have faith and faith in Jesus Christ. As if somehow that's being intolerant. I think to myself, what if somebody came up to you as you were filling up your car and said, you know what, you're so narrow-minded for thinking that gas has to only go in the gas tank. I mean, you'd say, no, that's not narrow-minded. That's just, like, smart. I mean, put it anywhere else, and my car's not going to go anywhere. So why would it be narrow-minded if the Son of God appears on the scene as he did 2,000 years ago and says, I'm God come in the flesh, here to redeem you and save you. All you have to do is follow and trust me, live life my way. And then all of a sudden people come along and say, well, thank you, God, but that's, that's just a little bit narrow, don't you think? That's just kind of intolerant of you, God. From God's vantage point, he says, intolerant, narrow, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you guys were lost in your sin, and I came to you in Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, come to bring you back to myself. Don't muck it up by a bunch of good works that aren't going to get you anywhere, and don't muck it up by putting the red gas tank into the wrong, the red gas can into the wrong tank. It's Christ that gives us our assurance. He is the primary one who can give us the assurance we need that we are God's. And so what does this mean for you and I Monday through Saturday? Well, here's what it means, folks, is the next time you're wondering if God is really with you, if you're really part of the fold because maybe you've given some bad teaching or you're just battling doubt or sin's getting the best of you, 
Simply ask yourself, has there ever been a time in history past where I know that I accepted Christ as Lord and Savior? What C.S. Lewis calls that first fervor, where I know that I trusted Christ. Has there ever been a time like that? Just be honest with yourselves. When you know that you connected with God through Christ, that you experienced salvation, and that you were His. Has there? And if there has, then apply 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And the only trick comes in is that some people say to me, well, what if your faith is weak in the moment? What if it's not an ongoing faith, but you're kind of struggling with faith in the moment? Then what? And you know what I would say? Apply it still. I mean, God knows in His grace that we get tired, that we get weary, that we go through dark nights of the soul, and that there's times we don't see very clearly because of confusion and doubt and hopelessness and discouragement. And God can relate to that. Jesus can. And again, in those times, just ask yourself that though I'm not seeing clearly now, was there a time when I know that Christ was in my life, that I trusted Him, and was that real? And when you're honest with yourself, if it was, then church, take assurance. Have confidence that He's not left you. That your salvation is secure. Not because of you, again, it's not a works thing, but because of Him. And I'm telling you, this is very powerful day in and day out when you're battling things out there, that you know how much he is with you and how secure you are in his activity in your life. It was five years ago this year I was pastoring in Cleveland and I uh, got really close to a, a, a single mom there who was my hairdresser. Ginny, I'm not going to make you insecure here. This is not you, it's, it's, it's Tina. And uh, Tina was my hairdresser. Okay, call her my barber. I don't go to hairdresser. She was my barber and uh, he, she had just come to the Lord. And a single mom, had a very rough background, and uh, Tina had had two children by two different marriages, drugs and alcohol background, but she had just become a Christian, and this woman was so on fire for God. She was so excited that uh, as a pastor, I was coming to get my hair cut from her, that she would book me for an hour rather than a half an hour. And she would cut my hair so short because she'd just talk the whole time and tell me all the things God's doing. God's doing this, God's doing that, it's great. You know, and I'd be like, oh, thanks, Tina, you know, and, and I just, I mean, she was so on fire. Eventually, she met the love of her life, Gordon, and they got married. And uh, Tina was 39, two kids, got married. And within six months of her wedding that I performed, they called me up with terrible news that Tina had stage four advanced cervical cancer. And she would be dead within a year. And indeed, she was. And it was just terrible, terrible news for her. Very tragic. Very tough for her nine-year-old son. Very difficult for Tina as a new believer in Christ. For that next year, I visited her on a regular basis. She had a wonderful little Habitat for Humanity home over in Aurora, Ohio, and I'd go there almost weekly to visit her. I'll never forget one time when I went to visit her, I took our worship pastor, and he brought his guitar, and Stephen was going to sing some worship songs to her. And I knew when I got in there that it was going to be a bad visit because Gordon, her husband, gave me the look of she's not having a good day. I sat down next to her. I put my arm around her. I said, how you doing, kid? And uh, she started to weep uncontrollably. And I said, what's going on? And in between her sobs, she said to me, she said, I'm so scared. I'm so scared of dying. And she said, and I don't even know who God is or where he is. I don't even know if I'm really saved. I just can't see clearly, and I'm so scared. Now, folks, let me ask you, what would you do in that moment? What would you say to her? I, we get in those positions, I mean, almost weekly with people. What do you say to somebody like that? I know exactly what to say because I've read 1 John 5, 13. I looked at Tina and I said, Tina, look at me. I said, I want to tell you something right now. There's a lot of stuff I don't know, but this I know. 
I said, I know that you have come to the point in your life where you accepted Christ. I said, you cut my hair for an hour, and you told me all those things about what God has done in your life. I said, I saw you marry Gordon, and on that altar, you had me play a newsboy's song in the middle of your wedding so you and he could worship together. It was tacky, but it was beautiful. I said, I have seen so many things in your life that have given me evidence that you have faith in Jesus Christ. And I said, here's the deal, honey. I said, right now, you are so hurting. You are so beaten down. You're confused. You're angry. I get it. I I might even be there myself someday. I said, but don't ever let that cloud the fact that you have come to believe in Christ. And even though you can't see it now, I see it. And I want to assure you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Two months later, Tina called me from an emergency room. She was two days before dying. She was in hospice of Western Reserve along Lake Erie, and she was panicking about dying. She called me from the emergency room, and she said, uh, through her sobs, she said, is it okay to go home? She said, I want to go home. I want to be with Jesus. Is it okay to go home? And through those telephone lines, I said, Tina, it's okay to go home. I said, he's waiting for you on the other side. Well done, good and faithful servant. Two days later, I was by her bed when she breathed her last, me and her nine-year-old little son. Very hard for him to see. But she peacefully breathed her last. And through the eyes of faith, I know she's in the presence of God. It's a glorious funeral we did for her. Folks, that's about as worse as it can get. A 39-year-old single mother getting stage four advanced cervical cancer and leaving behind a nine-year-old son. It doesn't get much worse. And yet God was in that, giving this woman profound assurance to the point where she said, I want to go home to be with him. And all I know is that if Tina can have assurance in that scenario, you and I win. We can have assurance as well in our own lives. But here's what it takes I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Red can, the right tank. Are you placing your faith in Jesus Christ? If you are, walk confidently that he is yours. Now, very quickly, because we're about out of time, I mentioned to you that John, so that we do justice to the text, gives us some other secondary sources of assurance. Now listen very closely. I call these secondary sources of assurance, and we're going to go through these very quickly, because the primary one, the only condition of our salvation, is faith. But there's some other things, and I don't miss this, that John says proceeds from your faith, that you're also going to see that are going to remind you that indeed you're his. Here's the list. The first one is loving others. Loving others. So look at how he says this, verse 1 and 2. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. And so John has already made it very clear in this letter that if we love other people and this love stems from our faith in God, that's the key, not just some you know, Oprah, New York Times bestseller list kind of love, but the kind of love that truly stems from your love for God into the lives of others, he said, be assured that you know God. 1 John 3, verse 14. I know it says, give me a click here, guys, on there. Yeah, it says 1 John 5. It's, a, it's 3, verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. 
And so here's how this works. The next time you're struggling with your faith and struggling with doubt and wondering if God is really in your life, in addition to checking whether you've come to believe in Christ for eternal life, also check whether the love of God is being poured out from you into others' lives. And again, it's not like it's the blue can of works because it stems from your faith. It's just that like we looked earlier, like sitting on this chair, it's an evidence of your faith. You love others. And so some of you today came here full of faith with a trunk full of food to give to those in need. What an evidence that you love God. What an evidence, if it's done from your faith, that you are truly His. That's how it works. Do you love others? If you do, and it stems from your faith in God, rest assured. Secondly, he lists obedience and righteousness. Look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 5. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, here it is, and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so John's already made this really clear earlier on in the letter that another evidence of our faith is that we're going to do the things that the Bible says. Like, duh, we're followers of Jesus. And so we follow his way, we follow his truth, we follow the New Testament teachings. And here's the deal. As you do that, in your own fumbling kind of way, because we're all imperfect, but as you do that and you see yourself following and obeying God, guess what? You can have assurance that you are his. And then thirdly, he lists the spirit within. Now, this is interesting, the spirit within. Look at how he wraps up this in verses 6 through 10. He says, This is who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies, because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Pause real quickly there. Water and blood, most theologians simply take that to mean Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. At his baptism, there was water. At his crucifixion, there was blood. And those are the two things that testify there to the truthfulness of Jesus' incarnation, his baptism and his crucifixion, his death on a cross for our sins. But then there's a third thing, the Spirit. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is that he has borne concerning his Son, Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And where does this testimony come? Go back to the beginning of the verses 6 and 7. From his Spirit. His Spirit speaks to our spirit that we are indeed his. And so here's my challenge to you. The next time you struggle with assurance and confidence, be a man or be a woman and get alone with God. And ask God to assure you in your spirit that you are his. King David in the Old Testament talks about God's still, small voice. The fact that he speaks to us in our spirit. And he still does that today, reminding us that we are his. So check out where we've come from. Your primary mode of assurance is your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. But added to that and flowing out of that, you're going to find that as you love others, as you obey and respond to him, as, your spirit, as the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit, that those are going to be other areas of assurance that you are His. And so there's only three groups of us here today. And I want to give each of you a challenge as we wrap up. We're two minutes away from being done. The first group that's here today are those of you who have already become followers of Jesus Christ. You know that you're followers of Him. And you need assurance every now and then, if not regularly, that indeed you are His. And today, you got it. You might have had it coming in here. That's great. You know the Word of God. But if not, you got it. 
You now know that your faith and your trust in Christ is designed to give you assurance. And you now know that as you love others, as you obey him, as the Spirit testifies to your spirit, you are indeed his. Second group, those of you who thought you had assurance when really you didn't. In other words, you're Christians, but you've really kind of doubted whether or not you can really be saved or his eternally. That, that until your last dying breath, you really wondered whether or not you were his. And today, I would encourage you to just rely on the red can of faith placed in the right tank. Avoid allowing all your works to be that which determine whether or not you are saved. Allow the red can of faith to determine that. And avoid placing the red can of faith in anything but Jesus. If you've waffled or wavered at all in your assurance, the red can of Christ placed in the gas tank, the red can of your faith placed in the gas tank of Christ is what gives us assurance. And then the last group of those of you who came in today knowing that you're a seeker, that you have not yet come to God through Christ, and as a result, you very naturally don't have assurance. And here's my challenge to you on Father's Day. It's really a question, and that is, could this be your day? Could this be your day? As many of you know, I didn't grow up in the church. Hardly went to church as a kid. March 11th, 1981, I woke up just like any other normal day. Little did I know that that was my day. There's a junior in high school, somebody was going to share with me the gospel of Christ, and it made sense. It just finally made sense for me. After all of my seeking, I finally realized that the answer to my seeking was found in a personal relationship with Christ that has brought me to God through the forgiveness of my sins. And that, as I've said quite often, my spiritual life that day went from black and white to technicolor. So maybe today's your day. Maybe the light's gone on in your head. I want to pray with you now. So why don't all of us, let's bow together and close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have a great day of worship here at our church, installing Troy and Wendy and their family, having um, Paul and Nina here with us, uh, giving to St. Mary's Food Bank and trying to make a dent in hunger. It's been a glorious day here at church. But Lord, I hope the most glorious thing that we also focus on because it is the most glorious thing, is uh, the sacrifice of Christ for us that gives us the chance of eternal life. And yet, Lord, we're realizing it's not some hedging of our bets as if it might or might not happen, that it can be a sure chance if we place our faith and trust in Christ, invite him to be the leader, the forgiver, the Lord and Savior of our lives. And Father, i got to believe that there are some here today that are, are ready to do that. So right where they sit, Lord, uh, they admit and they thank you that you made them, that you love them, that you created them in your image, but that, Lord, sin has made a mess of our lives. We all can admit that. And sin separates us from you. We feel that distance. But, Lord, today they want to come home to you to believe and trust in your Son, Christ, for eternal life. And so, Lord, as they figuratively take the red gas tank, of gas can of faith, and place it in the tank of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would assure them, as you've assured so many of us over the years, that indeed we are yours, that your grace is that profound. And I pray, Father, that as that happens, that you would give somebody this moment here today that initial burst of assurance, that fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, that indeed they are yours. God, we want to live for you. That's what we're all here to talk about. And so, God, this week, help us. To apply these things we've talked about, when we've tempted to doubt, may we lean heavily on your Son, Christ, using the faith you've given us. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together,
Amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. We'll see you next week.